Welcome to Technoviews, a series of interview videos and podcasts with major figures in the humanities and social sciences on topics at the intersection between technology, society, and culture in Asia and the world. My name is Joseph Bosco. I am a research associate in the Department of Anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis and also an adjunct associate professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. The subject of today's podcast is Rural Urban Migration and Agro-Technical Change in Post-Reform China. Our guest is Dr. Lena Kaufman, author of the new book titled Rural Urban Migration and Agro-Technical Change in Post-Reform China, published this year by Amsterdam University Press. And I should add that it's available open access, but more on that later. Hi, Lena. Welcome to Technoviews. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Dr. Kaufman is a researcher and lecturer at the University of Zurich. She received training in social anthropology and, and, and as a China scholar in Berlin, Rome, and Shanghai, and specializes on the topics of translocal and transnational China, food, farming migration, as well as technology and infrastructure. So um, the book often refers to uh, sociotechnical, this term sociotechnical. What does that mean exactly? Yes. Well, if we think about a common sense notion of technology, um, then we still, or many people still believe that technology is something neutral, that it's free of issues of power or gender or or culture or society or anything like that. So um, I use social technical to highlight um, that the social and the technical are really closely intertwined and that they're part of the same coin, just two sides of the same coin, and that they belong together. And this approach is not new, of course. I mean, many scholars have, have made that argument before. But nevertheless, this common sense notion of technology still remains deeply rooted in, in general society. So I, th I still believe that it's necessary to, yeah, to highlight how these belong together. And in my case, I look at farming technologies and also at land use decisions of farmers in a migration context. And I argue that such ostensibly technical farming decisions are always also social decisions. So if you look at land use choices, for example, you see the whole migration story reflected in, in the land and also um, yeah, the, if you look at different household situations, you also see this reflected in in the use of certain technologies or the choice of, of certain farming practices. For example, if you have an old woman who cultivates a cash crop, suddenly that is called lamp rush in, in Hunan province instead of rice. People who know about the local situation, they can immediately know that this is also a social choice and not just a technical choice or not just a choice for making money, but also in view of maybe that her family members have migrated away to the city and she stays home by herself or she has certain manual skills that she can use for processing this lamp brush. So in every technical farming decisions, there is always something social in there. So this is what I want to highlight with the term social technical. 
Okay. Now, the book emphasizes material requirements like the need for paddy to be planted annually because otherwise it gets ruined. And the fact, um, and also the fact that the introduction of transplanting machines was not successful in, in Hunan. Uh, and this surprised me because in southern Taiwan, where, where I've done research, farmers do take paddy out of cultivation for a few years to grow vegetables and fruit. And all the rice now, nowadays is transplanted by machine in southern Taiwan. So, what are we to make of the fact that these material requirements, I put them in, in quotation marks maybe here, um, it varies so much by region and that, te that the technology can seemingly improve and, and, and change? Yeah, this is a, a good question, but also a very difficult question to answer. <laughs> um, because indeed, even within mainland China, you see a lot of variation. For example, with regard to the adoption of, of transplanting machines, you find some areas, some provinces in China where they're wide, widely used and others where people don't use them at all. And I don't really have a definite answer here, but I think that you always need to look at the whole socio-technical system, including, um, yeah, in this case, rice farming, but also adjacent um, economies such as labor migration, and also to look at the particular policy context and the particular household situation. So I think this all really plays together in, in choices of, of technologies that, um, yeah, that we need to, to analyze and to find out about if, if we want to answer this question. Yeah, uh, in, in the case of Taiwan, I, I was told at the time that that um, that it was because the soil was was so good <laughs> that they could um, take the paddy out of cultivation. But I'm not really sure what um, you know what what because I know that Francesca Bray has in her you know very famous book talks about the need to, to maintain the paddy, otherwise it gets ruined. Um, so this is a very curious uh, phenomenon to me. Yes. All right. So one of the main points of the book is that uh, technology is not just a matter of linear progress of adopting increasingly advanced and mechanized technology. And, and that the, the book also argues that the so-called backward and modern technologies are both used strategically. The book has the example of buffalo continuing to be used instead of power tillers and hand sickles instead of uh, harvester combines. Um, on the one hand, your argument seems to be similar to the old appropriate technology argument from the 1960s and 70s. So uh, first question is, how is it different uh, from that argument? Secondly, it seems that many of the situations you describe are really just transitional, that the so-called modern quote-unquote technology usually takes over in the long run. In, in Taiwan today, for example, there are no uh, buffalo in the area where I did field work. There still were some in the 1980s, but not today. Nor does anyone harvest by hand. So yes, farmers use technology strategically, but isn't there a strong tendency to adopt labor-saving technology in the long run? Yes, I mean, these are two interesting questions as well. Well, regarding the first part, the appropriate technology part from the 1960s and 70s, there are certainly some parallels. But I think what is different here then is, again, if you look at the particular context in China, the political and economical context in mainland China, where, um, yeah, you have the central and the local governments who 
really make a lot of effort to introduce these new purportedly modern technologies um, to modernize peasants and yeah I think this then still plays out in, in a different way locally and then yeah regarding the question about the tendency to um, adopt labor-saving technology and whether this is only transitional I believe that on the one hand you're probably right because there there are changes that even in the short period of of time that I observed now in the field that is about a decade maybe you you see certain changes but then on the other hand if you look at certain points again for example also in history or or that may occur in the future for example right after decollectivization when suddenly farmers um yeah the collectives had maybe very large farming machinery and then they they went back to household farming and they couldn't use these large machinery anymore so they had to go back to to what they had stored in in their sheds and their other examples or other situations that could occur for example a shortage of fuel or of electricity or so i think to to safeguard these technologies and and i observed that that farmers did this that even those that they clearly did not use anymore and did not plan to use anymore such as threshing tubs where where you thresh rice manually but they still kept them and I found that really fascinating. So I think that it's it's also a way of, of preparing yourself for the future of if if anything happens you can always go back to to these um yeah manual technologies for example and um yes and it's also a way to, to store knowledge and for example, even also in Proverbs, that in a way you can go back to if necessary, because each technology offers a way to, um, yeah, a way to, to find, uh, it, each technology provides a certain social, social technical solution to a certain social technical problem, and then if new problems can occur, so I wouldn't be so fast in, in dismissing all of the manual technologies. I, I think they are still going to be there for a while even if they're not used yeah I actually I should mention that that um, for for listeners that one of the things that's interesting about the book is that you did many anthropologists go to a place for a year and then they, they and that's about it they get a snapshot but your book actually covers uh, a decade close to a decade of change in these uh, in, in these communities so um, the book focuses on the, what you call the, the paddy field predicament, which is one of the key concepts in the book, which is the idea that rural families need to migrate to make more money, but also need to stay in the village to maintain their rights in paddy and to cultivate it, uh, to, to cultivate it so that the paddy doesn't become damaged. But in the conclusion, the book argues that, and I quote, there is no simple urban rural dichotomy when it comes to Chinese migration patterns, even those who move to the cities remain part of their village communities, unquote. So how much of this is peculiar to villages relying on paddy? Is there really a technical reason for this, or is it not true of all so-called peasants who are notoriously attached to their land? Yes, this is a, a question that I've also been wondering a lot about myself throughout this research and 
how far what I observed here in, in relation to paddy fields is really particular to that or also in other places in China. And I did not conduct field research in, in other regions of China where people grow other crops. But I know from the literature that in a way you find, I mean, similar situations also in northern China where, where people grow dry crops and, and they still need to, I mean, this importance of the land is, is there too, certainly. But I think the particular strategies that that people employ are still different because in, in rice farming, for example, you have certain time windows and with regard to transplanting or harvesting, which are very short and where you need a lot of labor input. So the way you have to organize yourself to, to preserve these fields then is, is different than, than in, in dry farming. But, um, yeah, also related to certain soil characteristics, for example. And I found, uh, yeah, there was one case in the literature, for example, in northern China where farmers um, who were also confronted with a migration context, they began to um, plant fruit trees and and to think of this as a, a long-term way to to preserve the value of, of the fields for also for future generations. And, and in rice farming, you have maybe this more immediate need of, of preserving the soil quality. But I don't want to be too techno-deterministic here also. I mean, and there is certainly also the issue of, of peasants being attached to their land. And, and I mean, this is something that I found, especially among elder farmers, um, and, and then, of course, you have this, what I already mentioned, the social security aspect of the land that, that you find in, uh, in any region in, in China. So, so it's not only about technology. Right, right. So uh, chapter two focuses on de-skilling, which is a topic that Glenn Stone, who's a previous interviewee on uh, SciTech Asia, has contributed to. The chapter is very clear that much knowledge is being lost, and I realize that this is a problem if we want to return to organic farming or farming free of synthetic chemicals. But I want to ask, is this really a problem for the residents today? Do, don't do they seek the skills and the knowledge they feel are important for their lives today? Yes, and um, I think here we need to look at at this issue of, of descaling from different angles or, or to consider it at different levels. So on the one hand, in, in this chapter of, of the book, I show that knowledge is actually also lost in certain areas. And especially among the young migrants, many of them don't know how to farm anymore. And on the other hand, you, you also have the situation of elderly farmers who have really embodied certain um yeah physical skills and and through years of hands-on practice and and these skills obviously cannot suddenly be lost but you have the situation that their skills are not valued anymore in, in the new workplace i mean this is de-skilling maybe more in the sense of of harry braverman and the situation of the industrial workplace and um yeah but but this also relates a little bit to the discursive 
side of, of de-skilling, but then you also have this more practical layer, which I mentioned. And, and regarding the practical side, I found that this is really a, a generational issue, um, what, what you also ask in, in your question, because I found that elderly farmers, for example, had a much higher appreciation of, of embodied skills, while the young migrant, um, rural migrants I talked to, many of them really did not care. And on the contrary, they thought it's, uh, yeah, they didn't think it is problematic if, if they don't have farming skills anymore. But on the contrary, they thought it was problematic if, if you only have farming skills. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's really this generational difference that, and, so I think the yeah the future will will show how how this plays out then when once these elderly people yeah get older. Is this what what you know, what you mean by the the skill turn? You use the word the 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 phrase the skill turn in the in the book at one point. Well, with the skill turn, I mainly um, refer this to to a subfield of migration studies, which is the um, material turn of, of migration studies, which is quite a, a recent. I mean, you have many material turns in different fields, but also in migration studies. And and what I would like to do with this book is to to think this material turn one step further in the direction of a skill turn. And here I mainly have in mind to think about both sides of yeah, not only to, to think about migrants, which is quite common that, that we think about migrants in migration studies only, and, and to look at their skills. And, and here I also had in mind a, um, a family of, of migrants, which I had researched earlier and uh, yeah, written a, a small book about them in, in German. And they were... So at that time, I investigated labor migrants in the city and, and how they used their rural skills and how they were considered commonly also in the literature and, and in public discourse as low-skilled migrants and unskilled migrants. So I, I wanted to show that they indeed do have important embodied skills and... um. Yeah, so they did not belong to this cohort of, of post-1980 migrants. And in the skill turn, I think it, it really helps us to look not only at these migrants, but, but to look at both at the places of origin of the migrants and, and of destination and, and to look at those who migrate and those who stays. And I think the skill turn that I propose here really allows us to, to look at both sides at the same time and to to consider both as as part of a community of practice of people who who do have a certain shared knowledge and and skills so i think this is um yeah highly relevant also for investigating other um fields of of migration so chapter three focuses on, on proverbs and sayings as a form of knowledge. It's a quite interesting chapter. Uh, the book has the example of, um, there's a picture actually of a, of a slogan on the wall of a, of a building that says, 人不懂贤, 天不懂荒, 
Uh, people shouldn't relax in winter and the fields shouldn't lie waste in winter. Uh, who wrote that slogan on the wall of that house? And, and related to this, did you notice any selection bias in the types of proverbs that were selected for publication by the two collections that you studied? Yes, um, I've been wondering myself who wrote that slogan and I wasn't able to, found, to find out. I mean, I, I asked some people in the village, but they all told me they didn't know. But based on what I read and about um, proverbs in China and also about pro how proverbs were, were used in, in the collective area and also by Mao Zedong, uh, I think it, I mean, seems very reasonable to me that it must have been probably some local official who who used this this maybe even already existing proverb but to to write this there as a slogan to remind farmers to care about their fields uh, maybe also even in in view of this migration situation in in some way and regarding these two proverb collections that I studied these date back to the 1980s when there was a major collection effort of yeah of the central or uh, yeah induced by the central government also and, and also at the local levels because people wanted to collect um yeah folk literature and, and knowledge before it was thought to get lost in the upcoming era of modernization and there are certainly some bias in there in this collection i mean some of these are made explicit in in the editorial section or there there is an editorial introduction to to these proverbs at the beginning that states for example that only those proverbs that were considered educational um yeah of educational value or only those that were considered new were chosen and those that were for example pornographic or that were Yes, morally um, not not valued and were not taken into this collection. So there you certainly see some yeah some bias in there. But but then also, Sigrid Schmalzer, for example, has has noted that the government also under Mao Zedong had had a certain um, yeah yeah a, a big interest in in collecting proverbs that that related for example to to organic farming practices and to fertilizing so so you you probably have this in there too i mean you you do find a lot of these uh, fertilizing um, proverbs in in there and and i think this is on the one hand because there is indeed a lot of rich local knowledge about that but on the other hand it's probably also the fact that, that there were certain political interests as well at play. Mm -hmm. So what does your study uh, of science and technology in China tell us about STS more broadly? Does the Chinese case help us understand science and technology globally? Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, science, science and technology studies have usually focused on, on what we commonly call Western societies. And and there's very little about, for example, about Asia. And in this, I think this is one, one point why, why you have this network and why you make this podcast as well. And so, and also, moreover, I think that 
um, science and technology studies have often looked at at high tech, what you yeah, what you commonly call high tech, but not so much at really the use of of everyday technologies and at at practices at uh, around these technologies. So I think in in this regard, it's it's always interesting to look at other countries as well, and and. China here is also particularly interesting. I mean, both in terms of of the longer history, but also, for example, in terms of of the role of the state uh, that it plays in in promoting technologies, and yeah, I think more generally, the the Chinese case can really remind us that that our imaginations of of technology are maybe not so. Um, yeah, that you cannot really apply them anywhere, everywhere in the world, but um, that we also need to to rethink our own notions of technology. Okay, and one of the questions we also like to ask is, um, what's the relevance of your book to a larger audience beyond uh, academia? Why should lay people read this book? And why does it matter to the general public? Yes, I think, I mean, currently, if you read the media in, I mean, in Europe or, or newspaper articles or watch television and, and probably also in the United States or in other places, you see that that China is really a, a polarized and politicized topic at the moment and that much reporting is really also very negative or, and, and people usually tend to equate China with the Chinese government, but rarely look below what is actually happening on the ground in China. And and so I think in this regard, the book, like other ethnographies of China as well, is really also a contribution to, to show to people what is below this image of, of the Chinese communist government and to really look at the everyday people behind this. And then... In, in my particular case, there's, yeah, I think there's a lot written about what is going on in the cities or uh, in Chinese cities. And, and people maybe know, know a lot about cities such as Shanghai or Beijing, but they don't know really so much about the Chinese countryside and, and what is happening there. So this is my book in this way is really a way also to to learn about the situation of of rural Chinese who are still about half of the population of uh, yeah half of the Chinese population more or less, and also to to learn yeah about their their lives their difficulties but also how they cope with the situation of of being rather at the bottom of Chinese society and and how they how they mastered this they're really not always very easy lives and which knowledge they they have although they're commonly seen as people who who lack a lot of knowledge and so I think this is also relevant for for policymakers I think and or for development workers who for example wish to introduce new technologies or um, people who yeah want to design policies for environmental protection because here for example you in my book I I show that 
the use of farm chemicals is often related, closely related to, to migration decisions and, and the necessity to save labor. So if we want to think, for example, these, these um, environmental policies more broadly and how they can be effective, I think then we really need to look closely at, at the complexities of the local situation. So I think this is something that, that gen a general audience can gain from this book. Yeah, very good. So last question. I can't let you go without asking about the technology and copyright issues with your book being published open access by the Amsterdam University Press. How was that made possible? Did you have to pay or get a foundation to pay to make it open access? Who is covering the costs of publication, like copy editing, layout, server space, etc.? Yes, this um, is a good question. And, uh, well, this part of the research for this book was funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation. And... The, that, I mean, in short, it's called SNF, abbreviated. And the SNF, SNSF has the requirement that um, all research that has been funded by, by this foundation needs to be made available open access to, to the general public. So they require that, that um, people publish open access and then they, they have funds yeah funding for this and you need to to apply for this and and the publications need to meet certain standards for example they have to be peer reviewed so that this is um funded so but the foundation basically it's the foundation itself is also is paying for that cost yes so then then they take over the book processing charges and and in my case, because English is not my native language, they also took over part of the copy editing costs. And but but then there are still costs obviously that remain on the side of the pub publisher and and that I don't know myself how publishers actually really handle this. Well, thank you very much, Lena. And thank you all for listening. You've just listened to Dr. Lena Kaufman in TechnoViews. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Please send us your comments and suggestions in our website at scitechasia.org.